Well, good morning, everyone. Those of you online, good morning, too. Uh, we are, um, I think all of you in the room have them. I made hard copies of uh, several PowerPoint slides. I, when I teach this, I use PowerPoint a lot, but don't quite have that same luxury here. But um, what I'm going to be interested in you doing with the handouts or the slides, the first one I want to look at with you, it has at the bottom Romans 5.12. And then the second slide I want to is 5, 12, the two atoms, and following that, Romans 5, 14. Let's see if we get any further than that. This um, passage that we started studying, I, I'm going to start with Romans 5, 12. We had covered some of that uh, last week, but we need to start there again to get the whole context uh, uh, this section. This is one of the most, uh, doctrinally speaking, in terms of theology, this is one of the most important paragraphs in the New Testament. And in a sense, really, in terms of the whole Bible, because it, it explains a great deal to us, as Paul often does, in a very succinct way. I think he would probably agree, as we read this passage, the two most formative influences in history have been two people. Adam and Jesus. From, from the vantage point of understanding human history, understanding humanity, understanding the issues that form the problems that we see all around us, uh, you, you have to understand what happened with Adam, and you have to understand what happened with Jesus. They are the two most formative individuals in history. Years ago, many years ago, actually, in the 19th century, a British historian by the name of Thomas Carlyle wrote a book, uh, which I think the title of it was, or it may have been the subtitle, but The Great Man Theory of History. And what Carlyle did was he went through uh, the history of the human race, and he identified key individuals who shaped and molded the direction of history. And in a very real sense, no matter how you study history, you can't ignore that. I mean, all of us right now, most of us, maybe not Joe, but most of us are familiar with World War II. I don't think any of you were in World War II. We're beyond that. I think most of those individuals are with the Lord now. But you know that had it not been for Adolf Hitler, there would probably not have been World War II, or at least the degree to which that horrible war unfolded. Uh, if you're in the, in the 1700s and early 1800s, you would agree Napoleon Bonaparte. Without Napoleon, there would never have been the wars that raged throughout Europe. But that great man theory, a great man idea of history, is, is, is relevant, kind of a significant thing to study. Well, if you take what Carlyle's argument is, you would say, doctrinally, the two most important people in history are Adam and Christ. And so what Paul does here, as he says, and again, I'm picking up with what we, we did a little bit last week, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. We talked about that last week, but that is an incredibly valuable verse, because that one man, and we'll see him identified in verse 14, that one man is Adam. But what I want you to do, if you look at and those of you that are on the slide that Glenn put up, which is this slide that you all here in the room have, 
Now, it, it, I hope you don't mind me doing that, but it's really important. I want to talk about two theological ideas, imputed guilt and inherited guilt. Imputed sin and inherited sin. Uh, I have a new grandson. He's a little over eight weeks old. His name is Luca. If I understand my theology and if I understand Romans 5.12 correctly, Luca has both imputed sin and inherited sin. That's really hard because this little eight-week-old, you know, he, he does three things in his life right now. He eats, he sleeps, and he's constantly going to the bathroom. That's his life. And he's awake, you know, but he still knows, and yes, he's growing spurts, so he'll sleep like, you know, 80% of the day he's sleeping because he's growing, you know, you know, all these things that the generation we don't want to talk about. But the Bible says Luca has inherited sin and has been imputed sin. Luca was born with a sin, the guilt and corruption of Adam. And so inherited sin means that our sin nature is transmitted from our parents. And when you go back to the Bible, Romans, uh, Genesis 5 would be a good place. You see the account. It's a large genealogy. I know it's very boring to read. But names, many of them are unpronounceable. Name after name. And the key phrase in chapter 5 is, and he died. Why did every human being die? Why does today every human being die? Because of inherited sin, inherited guilt, and imputed. Imputed guilt is transmitted from each person by Adam. So from Adam on down to you and me today, we have inherited sin and imputed sin. Now that's a little more difficult, impute. Impute means it's added to you. It's a, it's a necessary characteristic of who you are. We are born sinners. Theologians call it original sin, but we're born sinners. That is a very unpopular thing to say today. That's a very unpopular position to try to hold today outside of the Bible. Because so much of humanity makes another argument. <clears throat> and that argument is that human beings are born good. Human beings are innately good. The problem is they're surrounded. Their environment, their, I don't mean trees out there, but I mean, your cultural environment is what causes you to do bad things. And so if we just put people in a really good environment, then their innate goodness is going to rise to the surface. Any amends to that? Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with, unless you study history, you don't know this name, but there's a man in the late 1700s, early 1800s, named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Rousseau wrote a series of books, he wrote a lot of books, but among others, he just said, if you put children in, on an island or put them in nature, put them where they're just all of the good things that surround them, their innate goodness will come. And you've got to build education around that. Well, in the 20th century, a man named William Golding wrote a very important book called Lord of the Flies. And what Golding did is he tested that. Now, it's a novel, but he has a, a, a number of British children uh, because of an accident and tragedy are marooned on an island. Okay, now that's exactly what Rousseau said. So what happens to these British boys on this island? Innate goodness? If you've read the book, they kill one of their brother, one of the, the kids in their group. You don't see innate goodness, you see innate evil. 
Now, again, I'm, I'm using a lot of different uh, uh, analogies and books and, and thoughts throughout human history because Romans 5.12 dismisses all of that and says sin came into the world through Adam and the consequence of that is death and death spread to all who sin. Now, he has to show that. He has to demonstrate that. In other words, he has to prove that. That's what he's going to do in the remaining passages. But you have the reality of sin in the human race. It's inherited and it is imputed. It is added to, it defines who we are. All right? Does that make sense? It's a very important argument. I don't know how else to say it except this very dogmatically. But the Bible rejects completely the idea that humans are innately good. It rejects that. It has no place for that. And when you study the 66 books of the Bible, you see the overwhelming, compelling argument that is made by Scripture. Something has to be changed in the human race. And that's why God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus. Now, with that foundation, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I actually uh, slide. Romans 5, 13, and 14. I was right. That's what the one I'd like you to look at now for right now. Now this one on the slide, does it look like this, Romans 5.13? Yeah, okay. Those in the room, I think you've got it. Glenn, can you bring that one up for those on the Romans 5.13? Yeah. No, the next one. Uh, one more yet. <laughs> if you could do it, please. Okay, there we go. That, that's it. That's what I want. Now, if you, if you look at the slide that's in front of you or you look at the slide that's on the, if you're online, you see a line with two arrows, like the beginning arrow and the ending arrow. You have Adam and you have Moses. Because he says, <clears throat> death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning must not like the transgression of Adam, who is the type of one who has come after Christ. Now, the, the slide that's on the, on, on the, uh, the computer you guys are looking at is really good. Those of you who are looking at it in print, it's a little hard to follow because I don't know why this happened in the print, but it said Moses, the law shows the seriousness of sin, the depths of defiance and rebellion. That defiance and rebellion should be over here. Okay? Now, what Paul has to show something here. He has to demonstrate something here. He has to um, explain something here. Death spread to all men because all sin. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So from Adam until Moses, when the law was given, there's no law. Explain why that's important. But are people dying? Yes. Yes. So that's why I put what you see is the power of sin and death exercise great dominion over the human race. That's what I wrote there at the bottom. Even without the law. Why? 
because the importance of the law, the importance of the law is here really explained by Paul. What does the law do? It shows the seriousness of sin, the depth of defiance and rebellion against God. Well, if that's true, but how come all of those before Moses are still guilty, still defying and rebelling against God and deserving of death? Verse 12, because of Adam, there is inherited sin, there's imputed sin. There's inherited guilt, there's imputed guilt. So every human being from the time of Adam until Moses died because of what sin did through Adam. Everyone that's born inherits and is imputed as a sinner. In addition, you've got to remember something from the beginning of the book. Did those people from Adam until Moses have the revelation of God? What did they have? They can see the world. They have creation, can see the world. Remember what Paul says in Romans 1.18. That creation tells us about the creator, but what has the human race done to that? that? They have suppressed that truth, and they distorted that truth, worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. And then the second piece of revelation is human conscience. That's Romans uh, 2, 1 through uh, 16. Remember that? And God puts on the heart every human being an innate sense of right and wrong. But what does the human race do with that? Suppresses that truth and distorts and perverts that into a hardened conscience. So all Paul is saying is you have to understand something. Even though the law isn't given until Moses, that doesn't mean everybody before Moses isn't guilty of sin does not deserve death, because sin reigned and death reigned. Why? Because sin entered the human race through Adam. And the human race had two major revelations of who God is, and they suppressed that truth and distorted that truth. Now, what does he mean at the end of verse 13? Sin is not counted where there is no law. What, what does he mean by that? What, what is the point that he's making? Sin does not have the character of a transgressor without the law. Now, the word transgression, which he uses in verse 14, and, and translating it from the Greek, and actually it's, it's in the Hebrew as well, Transgression means you're missing the mark of God's moral character. You're missing the mark of God's moral character. In creation, you don't have all that. You have revelation of who God is, his power, his deity, etc. Human conscience, God puts in our heart an innate sense of right and wrong that is unsuppressed, conscience is hardened. But with the law, you have very specific categorization of God's moral character. And if you don't obey that, you miss the mark. You transgress. Transgression is one of the words for sin. What is God doing? He's getting more and more specific. And with his law, that his moral law that he reveals through Moses, now 
there's clear clarity of God's moral character and God's moral law. And if you disobey that, you transgress the law. You miss the mark. So, therefore, the Jewish people who received the law are more accountable to God. And as the moral law is revealed to all of humanity, which it is today, for example, there are so many copies of the Bible, so many copies of the Ten Commandments, almost anybody, even those who don't even have never cracked the Bible, or heard of the Ten Commandments. You're accountable to so what does the law do? It, it demonstrates with clarity the seriousness of sin, the depths of sin, the depths of human rebellion, the depth, let's use this word, of transgression. It defines, defines it. I'm sorry? I think it defines it. It defines, it defines sin. It. That's right. It defines it very specifically. That's exactly right. What did you say in the, at the beginning of the, about sin before the law? Your opening statement. Uh, <laughs> what did I say? I don't. I don't have this all written manuscript and said. Okay. I'm not sure what. I, I don't exactly remember what I said. Uh, it couldn't have been that great, or I would have remembered it. But, um, <laughs> Sorry. So, you're fine on the podcast. Well. <laughs> If, if you go back to the end of it, sin is not counted where there's not the counted is the same with the Gibson's thought that we've seen earlier quite a few times. It's not added to our count, but are human beings before Moses still guilty? Yes. Inherited guilt, imputed guilt. But they also had the revelation of God's creation, the revelation of human conscience, all of that. So they're still accountable and they still die. And what he says, yet death reigned in verse 14, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now that, again, if you go to that chart, what was Adam's transgression? And it's singular. One transgression. What was it? Yeah. The, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he ate. He ate of the fruit of that. So that was one transgression. How many transgressions, or let me put it in the, how many commands are there in the moral law of God? Well, you start with 10, but then it, 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 it's, can I say snowballs? I mean, it increases <laughs> because what God is doing, and the, the best place to look for that is the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is a commentary, an extended commentary on the Ten Commandments. And you see the fullness of God's moral revelation to humanity in his law. And so you go from one transgression, Adam, which he violated and the result was death, to Moses received the law, where now the thorough, thoroughgoing nature of human sin, the thoroughgoing nature of human transgression is explained. And the serious, seriousness of sin is explained. So this is a, this is a, maybe it isn't helpful, but I, I think it's helpful. This is a helpful explanation of what God has done through his revelation to humanity. What I'd like you to do finally in terms of this overall explanation 
is look at this chart. Glenn, it's uh, the chart that has two stick men and a little fun. That's it. That's the one. That's the one. Now, this is really helpful because this summarizes what we've been studying and what we are about to study on the second half of the slide on the other side of the cross. You have in Adam, okay, all human beings are, quote, in Adam, close quote, because we're human beings. For Gentiles, for non Jews, their relationship with God was none. The governing, reigning nature of them was sin. Reigning is spelled with strong words, R E. IGN, and then the fruit or the result is death. You have the second kind of a stick figure there, Old Covenant Israel. Their relationship with God was based on the law. Now, to be justified, it was faith, chapter 4, but their relationship was based on the law. That's how a Jewish person walked with God. But the governing reigning nature was still sin. Because now the Jewish people, once the law is given in 1446 BC, have very specific, very extended commentary on the moral law of God. What does it mean, I should not covet? Chapter after chapter after chapter explain God. What does it mean, I'm not to steal? Chapter after chapter explains how God looks at the sacredness of private property. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about something very, very small and seemingly inconsequential to acres and acres and acres of land. It's all important to God. The result is still death because what does the Bible say? You violate one article of the moral law of God. You're guilty for the whole thing. That's how serious this is to God. Now, I think you would agree, looking at 512, 513, and 14, and summarizing it with this little chart, this is serious, serious business. God has to do something to change it. Because if you just have 512, 13, and 14, you would conclude, well, the situation for the human race is hopeless. Because it doesn't matter what God does, it just gets worse and worse and worse. It doesn't matter how much God reveals about himself and, and, and explaining his character and his righteousness, the human race just keeps suppressing the truth and distorting the truth. What's the first word of verse 15? But. So now Paul is setting up a meaningful, important contract. But the free gift is not like the trespass. And we have to think a little bit about that. And this is why things to shift. Look at this chart. Glenn, it's the one that has Romans 5, 12, the two atoms. This one. I want to give you the big picture, then we're going to work our way through his argument. He just said, but the free gift is not like the trust back. As at the bottom, Romans 5, 12, and following the two atoms. Okay, you with me? The free gift, Adam, transgression. 
The transgression of Adam has this consequence, condemnation, death, imputed and inherited corruption and guilt. But the free gift, the free gift of salvation, Christ's death, burial, resurrection undo all that Adam did, and it produces not condemnation, but justification. In Christ, we shift from being in Adam to being in Christ. In Christ is a little phrase used 242 times in the New Testament. It explains that sphere of blessing, of grace, that free gift where we reign with Christ, that new order, the new covenant, the new era has gone. So Paul, it's a very, it's a powerful verse, verse 15, for the free gift is not like the trespass. What trespass? The previous verse, the trespass, the transgression of Adam. The transgression, the trespass of Adam resulted in condemnation to the entire human race. The result of Christ's free gift of salvation results in justification. He undoes everything Adam did. In terms of the history of the human race, there are two individuals, the most consequential human beings in history, Adam and Jesus. Paul has just given us that important and profound insight. Both men have a had a consequence that affects the entire human race. Adam, condemnation. Jesus, justification. Now he explains it, still in the middle of verse 15. For as many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, found Amen. This chart. Two human beings. Each had a profound impact on the human race. But with Adam, excuse me, with Jesus, you see it twice, the phrase free gift. Now that echoes back to what we studied at the end of chapter three and throughout chapter four, really at the beginning of chapter five. It is not by works or by merit or what we earn that the free gift of salvation is offered. As I say many times, God puts the gift on the table. We have to pick it up. So he's saying that free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus abounded for many. And that free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, where the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Again, the chart we just looked at summarizes this. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man, much more, though will those who receive the abundance of, of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. It's really important that you see that word receive. You've got to pick up the gift. If you don't pick up the gift, you do not receive the free gift of righteousness. Look at this little phrase, reign in life. He's already told us sin reigns in human race. But for those who receive, they pick up the gift, the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life. 
What does that mean? Well, I don't know about you. I put my faith in Jesus. I have the absolute certainty that I've been declared righteous. The Bible tells me that. We're studying that right now. I'll tell you, I don't feel much like I'm ruling and reigning right now. Do you? Are you guys sitting on a throne somewhere and reigning over some dominion that God's given you? But there's coming a day when we will. When we will rule and reign with Christ. So it is part, if I can, I think you'll understand what I put it this way. It's part of our positional truth part of our position but there's an already not yet tension to our position there's already not yet tension to some of the promises god made to us you understand what i mean by already not yet we are experiencing the blessings of god's grace of salvation and justification the guilt of sin is gone the burden of sin is gone the judgment of sin has been taken by christ but the not yet aspect of this is still not ruling and reigning yet because sin and death are still reigning. When will sin and death, let's follow through the metaphor, when will sin and death stop ruling? When Christ returns. And you and I will rule and reign with him. So it's part of that already not yet tension of being the believer. And that's why I put the phrases here, great, incorrect, great, free gift, reign with them, the new order is gone. The, the, the new era, the new covenant era has started. It started with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, coming of the Holy Spirit. But it's not totally complete. It awaits the second advent of Jesus. Now, Verses 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 17 are loaded verses. I did my best talking and using these terms and so on to explain it. Are you with me? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Joe's shaking his head. He's not sure, but he said there's a lot there. And I agree with that. I'm giving you some minutes or seconds to think about it, to articulate a question if you if you need to question or ask me about it. One one comment yeah. I, I, when in fifteen when um, he says the free gift, and then in sixteen he says the free gift. And in, in the Greek, the, in fifteen the free gift is charisma. Charisma. And in 16, it's Dorea. So the, the, the charisma is, is, is God's grace and his mercy. And the, the free gift in 16, the Dorea, is, is the unpayable, un, unrepayable gift of salvation that God has given us. That we didn't deserve, merit, or earn. That's right. There's, and there's, there's no human way that we can even begin to even think of, of repaying that, that gift. That's exactly right. 
That's a, that's a marvelous, marvelous uh, explanation of those two important terms. That's right. If I were, no, you would never do it anyway, but if I would give you the assignment of a thought paper from verses 12 through 17 of Romans 5, show me why Adam and Jesus are the two most important human beings in history. Could you do that? How would you set it up? Well, you would say you have a man, Adam, who has one commandment. He, he's a moral creature. He's an ethical creature. That's the way God created him. He has one commandment. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are no other commandments. He doesn't have a whole book. He doesn't have the Ten Commandments. He doesn't have Leviticus. All he has is one commandment. He is a moral creature. He's accountable for what he does. But he also is told by God, if you do eat of that tree, you will die. Does he? Yes. Not that day. Well, no, not, but, you know, we don't know how long it is from the command of God until he actually does it. But anyway, when he does it, does he die? Yes. He experiences the lack of fellowship with God. He no longer walks with God in the garden. And the consequence of that is he dies. And the proof that this affects everybody is chapter 4, where his son kills his other son. There's something wrong with the universe. My, oh, my. What had been innocence and perfection and, and abundance now turns into chaos and one image bearer killing another image bearer. And then you have chapter five, this complicated long genealogy, and the key, as I said earlier, and he died, and he died, and he died. So every human being is following dying. Why? Because of what God said. So the consequence of what this man did. This one man is condemnation, is judgment. Imputed guilt, inherited guilt. The other man, Jesus. Jesus offers human beings the solution to this crisis. Now, I'm going beyond what's in these verses, but it's in the rest of the, uh, rest of the book of Romans and the rest of the New Testament. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension back to the Father, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, is what God does for us. God takes the rap for us. His Son dies for us. His Son is judged for us. In the words of Isaiah, God the Father pours out his wrath on God. And the consequence of that is the offer of the free gift of justice. Two most important human beings in history. Wouldn't that be a fun paper to write? Nobody responded to that. So, Amen. If you can walk through what I just did in the last couple of minutes, you really understand the Bible. You really understand what God really understand how the one man produces condemnation, the other man produces the offer of justification. 
All right. Any other questions or comments? Everybody online with me and everybody here in the room is absolutely with you. You gotta see these guys. They're yep. yep. Amen. <laughs> Leaping up and down. Excitement. All right, let's go on. Now, this is heavy stuff, but I think I can say this with some confidence. 95% of evangelical Christians in North America cannot explain what I just talked about. They really couldn't. Well, you're no longer among those ignorant. You're now in very clear on these things and understand the importance of why things are in such a mess. Let's continue verse 18 and 19. And really, we'll go on through 21. I think we'll have enough time to do that. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, what's that one trespass? Adam in the garden, already talked about it. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. Now, you have to make sure you go back to verse 17. You receive the abundance of grace, free gift of, of righteousness. You receive that gift. It's a gift, free gift. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so, again, that's very, I think, clear. I hope it is. Verse 18 and 19, very clear, summarizing the two important individuals of history. Consequence of each one. Verse 20. Paul, and this is a little hard, Paul believes it's necessary to say a little bit more about the law. A little bit more about why God gave the law. Now, I'm in verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, to increase transgression, some translations have it. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. Now, he uses really a little bit unusual, but it's, it's not, nonetheless easy to understand because of something that's in Galatians. Now, the law came in. That, that, when you, you read that, it sounds a little awkward. The law, law came in. Because the language there is, there wasn't anything, now the law comes in. In the language of Galatians, Paul puts it this way. It was the promise that God made to Abraham. God added to that promise, the law, until the Messiah came. So I'm going to draw something on the board. I hope there's a marker here. 
look at it this way. Here is, this is the Abrahamic covenant. This was approximately something here in Romans 5.20, we see something here in Romans 5.20 should also be read with Galatians chapter 3. Because it really helps us to understand the relationship of the law to the covenant promise God made. The law came in, the law was added until the Messiah. So the law has a very specific point in history. Began in 1446 BC, it ends in AD 33. The law is not eternal. The law is not something that's going to last into eternity. Its function, and this is what he says in the language of, of, of Romans 5:20, to increase the trespass, to increase the transgression. It, wait a minute. That's if you remember in grammar, that's an infinitive. It tells us the reason God did it, to increase the trespass, to increase the transgression. What does that mean? Well, it's what he said earlier. God adds the law to explain his character, his moral law, and to demonstrate the depths of human depravity. It shows how far we miss the mark. But did you know he's not done? But where sin increased, grace abounded on them. What does that mean? Grace abounded all the more. If you look at our society, we have so many temptations. We have a whole lot more grace that we live under that kept us free from. Life. I was thinking back of my life. Look at all the people I know. It's helped me appreciate the grace God has shown me. Mm. I have not fallen into some of the problems, all the divorces, all the problems. Any of them. They're no different than me. Yes. I'm no better. I was given grace, and I didn't fall into that. Yes. We talked about this before. Let's quickly review it. God always deals with the human race on the basis of his grace. What if God always dealt with the human race on the basis of injustice? There would be no hope for us. You know, we're born, my little grandson, born, and within not too long of a period of time, if God dealt with Luca only on the basis of injustice, there'd be no hope for my grandson. He'd be a smoldering cinder on the carpet within a few months <laughs> because he's going to start disobeying his parents. You know, I remember when I was raising my kids, I never had to say to my children, I want to teach you to say no to daddy. 
It's going to take a long time. We're going to work on this. It's going to be day after day. We were, no, it was the opposite. I had to teach him to say yes to Daddy. You do what Daddy wants you to do. You see, God deals with it, and there's the common grace of God. That's what Bill was talking about. You know, when it rains, it just doesn't rain on my little lot, 774. It rains on all my neighbors, most of whom are not believers. One's an atheist. Other one's a Buddhist. I mean, God showers. Believers, that's his grace. Where sin reigns, grace also reigns. Then there's his saving grace, which we've been talking about. And then there's his sustaining grace, which is part of what Paul was talking about as well. God always deals with us in grace. So that the consequence, this is the intended result, verse 21. So that as sin reigned and death, Grace also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. And that he's summarizing what he has been saying. Sin reigns, death reigns. But there's hope. It's in Jesus. Because grace reigns through the righteousness that's offered to us in eternal life. Yeah, through Jesus. Brought all of this together, and it's it's this, this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21, is really, really important passage in the Bible. Because it explains to us the importance of Adam and his consequence and result, and the results of Jesus and his consequence and result. The two most important human beings in history. And how God, in his grace, offers us a free gift that deals with our inherited and imputed guilt from Adam. This is theological. And as I said a couple of minutes ago, I'm very, very certain, because I've seen this in my own ministry over the years, the vast, vast majority of evangelical Christians you could not explain what we just went through. I have a question. Yes. Um, can, can we take a moment on the Galatians 3.19 and untangle that a bit? Okay. I don't have that in front of me, Rush. Um, I can get it in front of me in just a minute. It says, uh, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, check, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, check, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That's the question. How does the, and it was put in place through angels, by an intermediary, comma added. My version says mediator, administered through angels by a mediator. Uh -huh. Right. Well, uh, okay, I, I'm sorry, I wanted to pull it up too. Uh, Fred had it. My left ear, I want to pull it around here. Now, I read from the SV translation, it says, Why then the law? I'm reading verse 319. Yep. Was added, there, there's that language, added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, you know, that's Jesus. And was right. put in place through angels. It, it refers to the law. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That intermediary is Moses. Moses is the intermediary between God and the people. 
So how do the angels factor into this? That's my question. Well, that's, that's okay. Now that, that is a little more problematic only in the sense that when you go back to, for example, Exodus chapter 20, when God is giving Moses the law, angels are not mentioned. Right. But it's, what Paul is telling us here, um, uh, Rush, you're the one answering this, answering this question. What yes. Paul is telling us here is that apparently angels were involved in the transmission of the law, in other words, the, the moral law of God in that transmission from God to Moses. So verse 19 is actually additional revelation that God is giving us through Paul. That in some way, Russ, angels were involved in the transmission from God to Moses of the moral law of God, which was, it was written down and so on. The intermediary is Moses, and part of that, part of that mediatory, mediatorial aspect of God giving the law, angels in some way were involved. Yeah. That's all we know. We don't, we don't have a lot of specific information, Russ, about what did, what did that look like? What exactly occurred? We actually don't know. Got it. I thought I missed something, that there, that there was a reference there that I didn't get. So, Well, I mean, did, did we at least start to begin to answer your question? <laughs> or, no, no, no I, get, I, I get the idea that angel, there's an implication, a bridge, angels are involved in somehow in the transmission of the law, right. but there's right. nothing that I can't build supports under that bridge. If this is, it's a, it's, yeah. this stands on its own. This kind yeah. of um, yeah, we're going to have to we're going to have to wait till we get to heaven for God to really explain <laughs> what that what that looked like, what was going on there, because all this is doing is just all uh, verse nineteen is telling us is that angels were involved in this mediatorial role between God and Moses in the giving of the law. Okay, and yeah, and then three twenty it goes it applies, but God is one, right? <laughs> Yes, and I mean, there he's there. Paul is contrasting the whole uh, Mosaic covenant and that covenantal relationship with the new covenant and all that's involved, just God. Yep. Yep. Thank you. All right. Now we got about five minutes. I want to introduce chapter six because, as you undoubtedly know, you know, in the original letter there weren't chapter breaks, there weren't verses, and so on. So immediately, sin that reigns in death, grace also reigns through righteous leading to eternal life. Kingdom where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul now necessarily has to answer a question. If where sin reigned, grace reigns all the more, this poses, this begs, this demands that a question be answered. What shall we say then? Are now, I don't know about you guys, but to me, that's a really legitimate question. If where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, well then logically, consequentially, I should sin more so that grace can abound even more. Do I have an amen to that? I think we covered that already. What's that? I think we covered that earlier in Romans already. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, no, 
that's that's not the right conclusion. And so Paul in verse two says, by no means, that is the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. Make a note. It's the strongest way you can say no. Emphatically, no. So what Paul does, this is really, really important. I want to summarize uh, verse 1 through 23 of chapter 6. Paul wants to establish two key theological aspects. Our identity with Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 14. And secondly, we are a slave to Jesus Christ, verses 15 to 23. What Paul is going to appeal to in verses 1 through 14, our identity with Jesus is positional truth. This is how God looks at me. This is how God looks at you. And because that is true, this is now why. I choose not to live a life of sin This passage is the key to sanctification. This passage is the key to walking in loving obedience with Jesus. This passage is the key that you and I have because of who we are in Christ. Now I'm going to just read a number of these, these verses. I'm going to go down through verse 14. Do you remember? Question, are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self, our old Adam, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death is so powerful. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That last verse, verse 11, the paragraph I just read, that's the key. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Because we identify, what, what has he just started? We identify with Jesus. My new identity is I'm in Christ. What does that mean? When God looks at Jim Eckman, what does he see? He sees, what does he just say? Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. I am dead, buried, and resurrected with Jesus. That's my identity. I mean, 2,000 years ago, I was in Jerusalem and put into a grave, but I put my faith in Christ. 
So my identity is when the father looks at me, he sees his son. And my identity now is all wrapped around Jesus. So I am to consider myself dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because I put my faith in Christ. My new identity is all wrapped around Jesus. Now next week, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go through five key phrases in verses 1 through 11. Five key phrases that explain fully and completely and comprehensively our identity. And this, I'm going to say something grammatically. This indicative, who we are, necessarily results in an imperative. Because of who we are, we therefore choose to obey and walk in love and obedience with the Son. This is who we are. The indicative mood leads to the imperative mood. Therefore, there's a command. Because of who I am in Christ, I therefore will choose to walk in love and obedience. That's the key to sanctification. And he's starting to build that case now in chapter 6. He's starting to build the case because he's, he's walked us through the doctrine of justification now. Now he's going to begin to walk us through the doctrine of sanctification. And the key to that is Understand how you start your new life with Christ. You put your faith in him. You've been declared righteous. This is how God looks at you. Dead, buried, and resurrected with his son. That's how he sees us. That's our new identity. Everything about our identity is wrapped around what Jesus did for us. Okay? So next week's will not be as difficult and as deep as this week. I think I've given you a lot to think about. I hope I did. I pray I did. All right, I've got to go, and I'm going to pray. So guys on, online and here, thank you, Glenn, for putting those up on the slides, too. I really appreciate you doing that. You bet. Father, we thank you for the truths that we studied, that the two most important people in history, Adam and Christ, all of the horrors and difficulties of sin, and the, and the death that follows sin as a result of Adam's disobedience. And we inherit and are imputed that guilt and corruption. I thank you for sending Jesus, because in Jesus, there's not condemnation, there's justification. In Jesus, there's not enslavement and bondage to sin, there's freedom uh, from sin. There's the new life, the eternal life that you promised, and even the promise that we will rule and reign with you. We thank you for the, the tremendously important change and transformation that Christ brings. He offers a solution to the horrible chaos of the human race. And fundamentally, we keep coming back to this premise. The primary issues for the human race is not political, social, economic, financial, spiritual. And until we make things right with you through Christ, there's no hope for us. Thank you for your grace that offers us salvation in Christ. You these men, as they go their separate ways and they go out into this world, help them to be men of faith who represent you well. That is our prayer. 